Well, thank you for coming out. Thank you for um, giving us the opportunity to look into the Word of God again. Um, this morning, uh, Malcolm uh, presented me with a question from last Sunday night. Now, let's see, I had it folded here in my Bible somewhere. And I that was a question from the question box in response to your teaching last what, What's that? Mike said? <laughs> Is it from Mike? No, I didn't say who it Who is it from? Who is it from then? I don't know. Does anybody recognize this writing? <laughs> and it, and the question is, are you saying that the rapture of First Thessalonians four is for both the church and Israel? Now I know lots of you weren't here, or maybe some of you weren't here last week, and so we used um, the basic gist of the message was. Uh, the upper room discourse, John chapter 14, uh, John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is the portion the Lord Jesus takes on, or this is what he says to his disciples to encourage them. And we said that that is in seed form, the rapture of the church, right? That's what we presented. Uh, then we went back and, uh, or sorry, then we went forward to First Thessalonians chapter 4 and thought about these three distinct ideas. I tried to think through this a little bit through the week. Um, if I would say to you the flag is red, white, and blue, what do you picture? If I was to say to you the flag was the flag is red, white, and blue, what do you guys picture? Well, I never said that. Purple flag. Why wouldn't you say purple? Red and white, or sorry, red and blue put together make purple. Why wouldn't you assume that it would be a purple flag? Uh, but we have an idea that that's three distinct thoughts, red, white, blue, three distinct colors. So we have uh, a picture in our mind. So we used in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, comma, distinct idea. Uh, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And so we went to lengths to show that... Uh, the Lord Jesus is coming back for the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, the uh, voice of the archangel, archangels always linked with Israel. Right? In the Old Testament, Michael the archangel, Daniel 12, verse 1, the prince of the people Israel. Right? Michael the archangel was the prince of the people of Israel, his keeper, their keeper, if you will. So we, uh, we used a verse in the New Testament to... Uh, sort of established this idea, that last verse of Hebrews chapter 11. As the uh, writer to the Hebrews goes through and talks about the faith of the Old Testament saints, right? Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, right? We, under, we believe that, right? Yeah. And so uh, talking about all those Old Testament saints, Hebrews chapter 11. It's too far or too close? Too far. That's hard to believe. Okay. It's very... Uh, do you hear that? Very kind of echoey or something. Is it gonna? Is that gonna go away, brother? All right. And so then we uh, the idea uh, Michael the archangel linked with Israel, right? We used a verse uh, uh, Daniel chapter twelve, or sorry, yeah, Daniel twelve verse one. Then we went to the last verse in Hebrews uh, that they talking about the Old Testament saints would not be perfected apart from us, the them and the us. 
us New Testament Christians, uh, the bride of Christ, them, the Old Testament saints. Now, I would give you another. Uh, you know, Mr. Darby said, be careful of building any doctrine on one verse. I don't believe this is built on one verse. We talked about Leviticus chapter 23 as well. But this is interesting to me. After the rapture, what's going to happen in your in your in your thinking? What's going to happen during the seven year tribulation for the church? What do you picture is happening? Do you, th- you believe that? You mentioned that this morning, right? Remember you said the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning and the Lord's Supper. Pardon? I didn't say anything about that this morning. No, but you did mention the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning over there, right? Who mentioned the marriage supper of the Lamb at the Lord's Supper? It wasn't me. It wasn't you. Are you sure? Somebody that looked just like you. Okay. Um, okay, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that biblical? Yeah, that's biblical. Where does that come from? Revelation. Revelation 19, right? You know, it's interesting, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, the bridegroom. These ideas are not, I mean, they're not throughout Scripture. I mean, bride, how many times do you think bride is used in the New Testament or even in the Bible in general? It's not that many times. Okay, so a supper, right? A marriage supper of the Lamb. So is this when the church will be wed to the Lord Jesus? Is that what we believe? Well, I would suggest that it is. That when uh, the Lord Jesus comes back in Revelation 20, he's coming back with his bride to the earth, right? That's what we think. That's what I think. I think lots believe that. Who's at the wedding? Well, here this, here's this verse. Here's this verse. And so uh, it's in John chapter 3. Who's got a Strong's on their phone? Who's got a Strong's concordance or a KGV with Strong's numbers on their phone? Does anybody? Yes. Lots of people. All the students. So, so let's get somebody to do it. Okay. Let's get somebody to look up John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, verse 28. You yourselves bear witness. This is John the Baptist speaking. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. The disciples of John, maybe others speculated that when people left John the Baptist to follow the Lord Jesus, that he would have been envious of that. But he wasn't. He tells us here he was not envious. Why? Because he was the friend of the bridegroom. Uh, he says, this is exactly why I came to introduce people to the bridegroom, to introduce the bride to the bridegroom. So now that word friend, you see this word friend? The, uh, verse 29, but the friend of the bridegroom, what's the word friend in Strong's? Read it, read it to me. Read me the definitions. There's four of them. Mike, go ahead. You've got it. You've got the biggest phone, so go ahead. <laughs> Friend, an associate, he who associates familiarly with one, 
companion, one of the bridegroom's friends who on his behalf asked the hand of the bride and rendered him various services in closing the marriage and celebrating the nuptials. Uh, you might recognize him as the so-called best man. That's what the word is. It's linked with the best man. So are, are you suggesting that at the, or not, you know, are people suggesting that because the Old Testament saints aren't resurrected till after the thousand years or however they see that, they're not going to miss the wedding, are they? I mean, John the Baptist was the best man. And I suggest you, it's not John the Baptist. He's speaking on behalf of the Old Testament saints. Hey, the Old Testament saints are not second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't profess to explain exactly how that happens, but hey, Abraham lived his whole life in a tent. Could he have afforded a house? He could have afforded a city. Hey, Abraham was not just rich. He was loaded. Okay? He, he, hey, he could battle kings with his household servants. He could go to war with, with kings, with the servants that were born in his own household and train. He was loaded. What do you, you, you think he lived, he lived in, in tents his whole life because he loved camping? You ever been camping with your wife? How much work it is? I mean, I like it. You know, sitting by the fire and, you know, get me this, get me that. But, hey, it's two days and we're on our way home, or at least Cindy is. So, Abraham, what motivated him to live like that? Hey, you don't have to speculate. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He's not going to be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't suggest he's in the bride of Christ, but John the Baptist would tell us, hey, he was thrilled to be the best man at the wedding, a friend of the Savior. Hey, Abraham's actually called a friend of God, isn't he? Right? Remember, he walked and talked with the Lord Jesus. And so sometimes people will say, oh, uh, the Old Testament saints, they didn't know as much as us. I'm like, well, okay, just a second. I understand what you're saying. We have the uh, canon of Scripture, but hey, Abraham walked and talked with the Lord Jesus, and he was a friend of God, a friend of the pre-incarnate Christ. So, uh, yes, the question, are you saying that the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4 is for both the church and Israel? Yes, that's what I was trying to say. So, moving on. Uh the New Testament. Now we know that um, the most important person in the New Testament is the Lord Jesus. We agree that he's the uh, purpose of all scripture that, you know, we thought last week that uh, the Lord Jesus could say to those two on the road to Emmaus that in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the Lord Jesus, most important man in all the Bible, Jesus my question tonight is, who's the second most important man in Scripture? Well, uh, maybe we would say by a use. What name is used second most in Scripture, would you guess? Moses, okay. Hmm? Paul, David, 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 David. David. It's David. Yeah. 
hey, David is used more than all those others put together. You believe that? All those other names. David's name, 932 times in Scripture. Now, the Lord Jesus, over a thousand, but David's close. Uh, First name in the New Testament. What is it? First name in the New Testament. The genealogy of Jesus. What's the last name in the New Testament? Jesus. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Hey, what's the second name in the New Testament? The son of David. This is this is an original thought. You know, the idea. This is something we need to think about because, hey, the Matthew, the writer, says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what's wrong with that. It's not chronological. It's reverse. We would have said son of Abraham, the son of David. But Matthew doesn't. He says the son of David. Hey, what's the second to last name in the New Testament? No, Jesus is the last. What's the second to last? Check it out. Maybe I'm wrong. I better check it out myself, right, Malcolm? When Malcolm challenges me, I gotta, I gotta think about this. Huh? Verse sixteen. What's it say? The descendant of David, the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The second name in the New Testament, David. The second to last name in the New Testament, David. David is an important man for the Lord. And so we want to think about tonight. Uh, you know, we thought uh, last week, last weekend, uh, David's uh, best known psalm, right? Uh, we thought of Psalm 23. We want to. Think of maybe his um, most useful psalm in the life of the believer. What's his most useful psalm in the life of the Christian? Well, I'm going to suggest to you, it, if it isn't, it should be Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is helpful to a Christian. And so we want to turn back, if we could, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Verse 1, David says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we look into your word, that you would by your Holy Spirit teach us, that you would help us to understand it. Father, you would minister your word and your son to our hearts that we might be built up, that we might be encouraged. We ask for your blessing and for your help in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, it's uh, fairly well known, I think, that uh, Psalm 51 is in the context of 1 Samuel chapter or second cha- uh, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 11. And so uh, I think it's important to keep your finger here and turn back. And read a little bit about the account as it's recorded for us in Second Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1 says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. He had one blot in his life. The scriptures record. Right? You remember that, right? It said he was perfect in serving his generation. All these commendations about him and what he accomplished for God, his heart strove after God, a man after God's own heart, except in one area, except in the issue concerning Uriah, the story of Bathsheba. And so we learn from this story that David stayed at home And he didn't have his armor on. Can a Christian ever afford to be without his armor? The answer is no. You know, we have a real enemy of our souls who's walking around seeking to devour. And so in this account, David stays at home. He has no armor on. It says, then it happened, verse 2. One evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? There were three warnings in the passage. God gave David three warnings. You know, um, you remember when you read through uh, the account of Absalom and how Absalom was able to turn the hearts of the people of Israel against David. Now, not all the hearts, but it's a jarring story of the way in which he was able to manipulate even some of David's closest friends, it would seem. And so the one that I've always struggled with is this man named Ahithophel. Do you remember the story of Ahithophel? You know, he was David's counselor, right? Uh, you remember that Absalom was a bit shocked, too, by these guys. 
And so do you remember what Ahithophel's counsel was to Absalom after he took over the city of Jerusalem? Do you remember that story? Yeah, do you remember? Who can recount it for us? Somebody want to? I often preaching to kids say, hey, give us give us the lowdown in one minute. Who wants to try it? Brother, go ahead. Right, right. Okay, okay. Just just, just as he asked. Okay. I was thinking before that, he was saying, you remember he said the first thing he thought that um, Absalom should do is go up on the roof and set up these tents with these ten concubines. You remember that? And sleep with them. And then people would know that um, that uh, David was finished. Some people have speculated, why the hatred? Maybe... Um, Maybe, uh, you know, Ahithophel wanted the position for himself. Why would he hate David so? Well, you know, the clue to the hatred that he had for David is right here in this passage. You notice this name here. It says, so David, verse 3, sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? Okay, so turn over. Keep your finger here and turn over a few pages to close to the end of Second Samuel chapter 24. Chapter, or sorry, chapter 23. Verse 34. At the end of Second Samuel chapter 23 and verse 34, it says, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. So, do you know what that makes Bathsheba to Ahithophel? It makes her his granddaughter. So the hatred that Ahithophel had for David at some level was revenge, or in a way it would almost seem just. David had destroyed Ahithophel's family. And you remember that when uh, uh, Absalom doesn't take the counsel that you gave. Do you remember what Ahithophel did? He went home and he put his house, it says, in order. Well, I would suggest to you what was left of his house. There was hardly anything left. His son-in-law, who he loved, who was a great man, also mentioned in chapter 24 or 23, uh, dead, murdered by the king. Um, His daughter gone. Uh, And so what was left of it, he put in order and he hung himself. I guess we learn that, hey, sin affects everybody. That my sin affects people around me. Your sin affects people around you. It affects your family. And so here, that's the background for what we're thinking about. So we say that the first is that it's Eliam. This was a, this was the granddaughter of his counselor. Then it says she was a wife. She was a married woman. David should have known. And then she was not just a married woman. She was married to one of his mighty men, an honorable soldier in David's army. I mean, if we learn anything from the story of Uriah, it's his loyalty to the the cause of David. Hey, you know, Joab was not an honorable man, but yet Uriah was loyal 
to Joab. Well, he was loyal to the kingdom of Israel. You know that one of the principles we learn from the word of God that by being obedient to our parents, we we are being obedient to the Lord. You know that the call, the hymn we sang tonight, the thing we think, sing about but so little do is this concept of obedience and that there's obedience linked with or there's blessing uh, linked with being obedient to the Lord and to being obedient to the ones the Lord has placed over us so let's look again Second Samuel chapter 11 so David um, takes Bathsheba to him that's chapter 11 uh, we go through all of chapter 11 uh, we see what happens uh, we know that story well uh, Hey, it's it's uh, sadly one of the stories the world's most familiar with in David's life, right? I mean, Leonard Cohen, this is what he's singing about, isn't he? Or what he used to sing about. He's now passed into eternity. Um, but he sang about the sin of David, Bathsheba. And so a year passes. There's probably a year between chapter uh, 11 and chapter 12. And then we come to this story of Nathan. And so let's read that together. It's so 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Nathan, or sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought up and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for him. Or sorry, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5 says, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And there came a time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus where it said that he only spoke in parables. What's the value of a parable? I mean, this is a parable, right? What's the value of a parable? Well, we see here in David's life, it gave him the opportunity to step outside of the story and to pass right judgment. I guess we could say as we pass over this that, you know, David had this righteous indignation. And we would be, we would want to make sure that we would pass along the warning to ourselves tonight brothers and sisters that were to be very careful of righteous indignation hey David sounded like he was he was a righteous man and he was indignant against sin hey he was the man doing it and, and so the Lord Jesus used parables Nathan used parables that allowed David to stand outside of the story and pass right judgment and so he does that he passes this fourfold uh, fourfold repayment linked with death. Did the Lord listen to what David said that night, do you think? That day? I mean, how many sons did 
David have that died an untimely death? You ever thought about that? Couple? Four. Four sons of David died an untimely death. That's the judgment he passed. Now the Lord didn't take his life, but Nathan says, verse 7, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God, verse 7 of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you and your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice the next line. It's not even a new verse. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Can the Lord do that? Is he right to do that? Is he? You know, there's a difference between being lenient and being right and just. Do you agree? Sometimes we're lenient on our children. But the Bible does never say that God is lenient against sin. So David takes ownership, the sin, before Nathan. And not even a new verse, not even a new idea. Nathan says that the Lord has removed your sin from you. Put away your sin, you shall not die. That's the principle of 1 John, isn't it? That if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just, not lenient, faithful and just, to cleanse us and to make us again righteous. So let's turn to um, Psalm 51 and learn a little bit, if we can, about sin. Uh, Verse 1, we read, David, uh, of course, doesn't cry out for justice. He has no leg to stand on. You think David knew something of the grace of God? David knew a lot about the grace of God. In fact, I would suggest that's why he was a man after God's own heart, because he understood the graciousness of God. And so he doesn't cry out for justice. He cries out for mercy in three different ways. He cries out for mercy before the Lord, for his loving kindness, for the multitude of tender mercies. And then he says, notice this, blot out, the last half or the last line of verse 1, blot out my transgressions. If I was to ask you tonight, is there a difference between transgressions and iniquity? What would you say? Well, you would say, yeah, I think there is. Is there a difference between uh, transgression and... Uh, iniquity and sin. Well, we would like to think that, you know, uh, as some have ably said, that the Bible doesn't use synonyms hardly ever. When he uses the Bible, when the Spirit of God uses a different word, he's thinking of a different idea. 
And so I remember not that long ago, maybe in the last six months or eight months, reading G. Campbell Morgan on Psalm 51. And so he said, he asked this question, what is the difference between uh, transgression and iniquity? And I thought to myself, you know, before I'm going to read his answer, I'm going to try and answer it myself. And you know what I came up with? Nothing. Like, I don't know what the difference is. Always thought of them as being kind of the same. I mean, I understood what people said that, you know, synonyms are rare in Scripture, but I never really sat down and thought about what's the difference between a transgression and iniquity. And so I, I found what he said helpful to me. And, of course, it would match with what a brother like W.E. Vine might say in his dictionary. Transgression is open rebellion. You get that? Open rebellion. The point is this. Hey, when David looked across to Bathsheba's roof, he was never in doubt about what he was going to do. He didn't think, I wonder if this is okay. You ever been there? I mean, I think of, I mean, my own life. You know, there. I don't. Do you guys argue with your wives in the states or no? You guys, Americans don't do that. Just with those people in other countries. Well, in Canada, sadly, we do. And um, you know, I've been at that juncture sometimes with those close to me, and I think, you know, I shouldn't say this. But then you know what I do? I say it. You know, I choose, I think about it, and then I say what I know is wrong. You know, sometimes my daughters would say to me, your words are so cutting. I say, well, yeah, I mean, that's why I use those words. That's what I was planning on was cutting you. So sometimes we're in life whatever it is in the workplace, in the home, and you know what's right, and you don't do it. You do what's wrong. That's a transgression. That's open rebellion against the God of the universe. And trust me, that affects us. That's what an iniquity is. The iniquity is this idea of how it twists your character And so, again, I use the illustration of my wife. She said to me not that many years ago, you don't say sorry like you used to. I'm like, well, you don't say sorry ever. So, I mean, I'm not sure what that has to do with anything. She said, you always used to say sorry. I'm like, well, I don't know that I am. And why do I always have to be the one to say sorry? See, those... Open rebellions affect your character and they twist you. And so you see these people that, hey, after a while of living in open rebellion, their character changes in such a way you can't even recognize them as a Christian because they're twisted inside. And so David understood something about this. Uh, He helps me in my life. See, David understood this, that Sin always is before the Lord. And this is remarkable. You know, he talks about sin down here. He, he says that for I acknowledge my transgression, my sin 
is always before me. And, and G. Campbell Morgan would say that sin is, a, is a, a summary of these two ideas put together. This idea of open rebellion and how it twists the character. And so it's these two concepts joined together. Sin, my sin is always before me. Then he says in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Now this is helpful. In resolving conflict in the life of my marriage with my wife. To say, well, when do you say sorry? That's not biblical. Hey, all sin is against the Lord. I mean, what a what an example this is as you think about that. Like David says, before you and you only have I sinned. I mean, what about Uriah? Did he sin against Uriah? What about Bathsheba? Did he sin against Bathsheba? What about the children of Israel? Did he sin, sin against the children of Israel? Hey, David understood something about sin. And he knew that all sin is first and foremost against a holy, righteous God. And so it's never right for me not to be apologetic. And that's David. David's way back against you. And you only have I sinned and done this evil, he says in verse 4. In your sight. Of course, he says that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know, this is one of the challenges in the world today that so often what the Bible calls sin, the world will call a mistake or a a disease or, you know, a sickness. And, And so David's not doing that. He's not making excuses for it. He's calling it sin before a righteous God. And he says God is just when he does that. You know, that's really what confession is, right? You know, 1 John 1, when we think about that verse, uh, what is confession? Hey, confession, the word by definition means saying the same thing as. You know, um, I remember a book years ago that I read was very helpful. Jay Adams on uh, competent to counsel. We'd worked with um, alcoholics and uh, you know, there was a lot of alcoholism in First Nations people and and, um, you know, these people would go to the doctor and people would say, you know, have a, you have a sickness. It's a disease. And uh, so so uh, Jay Adams uh, helps us in understanding this concept. When they go to the doctor and the doctor tells them it's a disease, of course, immediately they want treatment. Doctor, what can you do to give me? What can you give me to cure me of my disease? Well, what can he give them? Nothing. There is nothing to cure it if it's disease. And so Jay Adams says, listen, the most benevolent being, the kindest being in the universe doesn't call it a disease. He calls it sin. And here's the advantage. There's a cure for sin. Right? You believe that, right? The precious blood of the Lord Jesus cleanses from all sin. And so David understood this, that when he called sin, sin, God was vindicated. That's what he says. Then he goes on to verse 8, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. He's saying it's not my fault. Is that what he's saying? I was born with it. I was born with a sin nature. Blame it on my mom. 
That's not what he's saying because he goes on to talk about responsibility in the next verse. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Yes, he understood that he was born with a sin nature, but he was responsible for his actions. God desires truth. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David understood that there was this cleansing process being washed from sin. It wasn't a simple concept. That there was a process that needed to be worked through and it was linked with a cleansing. Make me, he says in verse 8, to hear joy and gladness. That the, bro- the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Some people, as they read this, say, You know, this is different for David than it is for us. Spirit of God can't be removed from us the day in which we live. And we praise God for that. We believe that. Boyd Nicholson says that although that's true, there are seven sins in the New Testament against the Holy Spirit, six of which a believer can commit. Quench not the Spirit. Grieve not the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, quenches this idea of sensitivity to what he says. I mean, if I was to ask, say, Brother Peter, Peter, can you do me a favor? What do you think he'll say? Of course, he's in the church environment. So he says, sure, brother, whatever. But in reality, he's going to say what? Well, what is it? Right? And so that's the concept. That's not what we want to be before the Holy Spirit. We come. We listen to the Word of God. The Spirit of God applies things to our hearts. And we say, Lord, whatever it is, I want to change it. So if you point it out, I want to change it. That's not grieving the Holy Spirit. Quenching. It's again this concept of linked with rebellion against the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, I'm not going to change it. And so although David prays, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me, we say we praise God that couldn't happen. But it could certainly be grieved or quenched in our lives, and we don't want that. Then he says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. We talked about joy this morning. David understood that this is how sinners were converted to God. Right? That's what he says. He says, then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We don't want things that to take away our joy. And so linked with that is this idea of being cleansed from our sin and knowing God's forgiveness. You know, um, we talk about you know, this concept of transgressions and iniquity. You know, the concept that they are two distinct ideas. I hope you believe that's true. I heard a brother years ago say that, um, you know, that the book of Isaiah is basically an overview of the Bible, right? There's how many books in the Bible? There's 66. How many chapters in Isaiah? There's 66. So sort of corresponding to the Bible as a whole. Um, 
It was 39 in the, New, the Old Testament and 27 in the New. Uh, you know, we were reminded tonight of John the Baptist and his declaration in John chapter 3. Um, they pointed out, this brother pointed out that, you know, where does John the Baptist come in to in the book of Isaiah? Well, keeping consistent to this thinking, he comes in in chapter 40, right? 39 corresponding with the old, he comes in in chapter 40. And so he says he likes to think about uh, those last 27 chapters. And he tries to bring it down, you know, to the, the central theme, if you will, to the central verse of those 27 chapters. So that's from 40 to 66. What's the center chapter? It's 27, it's 14 in from each end, right? Gets you into the center. Is that true, Mike? You're a numbers guy. Are you a numbers guy? Or are you just muscle? Just a beard, okay. So, 14 in. Where does that put us? Isaiah 53. That's what we want to try and find the central verse of Isaiah 53. Well, we know that really the three previous verses, chapter 52, belong in 53, right? I mean, that's the complete account. So there's really 15 verses that belong in Isaiah 53. And so he says, what's the central verse? Well, it would be verse 8, or it would be eight verses. Eight in from each end would give you the central verse. So it would be Isaiah 53, verse 5. He said that would be the central theme of those 27 chapters. And he suggests that's the central theme of the whole Bible. What is Isaiah 53, verse 5? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Scripture makes a distinction between transgressions and iniquities. But God's solution is always the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He has made allowance for your open rebellion. And you do that. And I do that. He's made allowance. The cross for that. And how it twists you. And could destroy you. If you don't deal with it. He's made allowance for that. His person and his work. And so we want to, if we can, understand what David can teach us through his one of seven penitential psalms. David was a man after God's own heart, but make no mistake, he understood something about sin and its serious consequences, and he knew how to... And, you know, some have speculated, what was it that David knew about God in a special way? I suggest to you it was David knew his way back. Not that he didn't get lost, but he knew his way back. He knew how to be made right again with God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're uh, thankful again for... Fellowship around your word, we pray, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us something of your ways, something of your heart. How we could learn from David, we pray, that we would be serious about sin and its consequences, and that we would learn to deal with it in a biblical way. Father, thank you for each one that's here. Bless each one, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.